You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. At this time, I'd like to invite Matt up. Uh, Matt's going to be leading our prayer for today uh, during our Sunday services. We like to highlight different prayer topics. Uh, just so you know about some of the ministries that we are connected with. And so Matt is going to be sharing about a ministry that he's going to be connecting with, that he has been connected with, and he's going to be praying for them. Yeah, so hi guys, my name is Matt. Uh, if you haven't met me, I work with uh, 1012 Sports as a volunteer, which is a, um, just a ministry in the city that uh, focuses on teens in West Baltimore and getting them uh, into sports programs, but more importantly, uh, we do like discipleship and mentorship. Um, so that's just at a high level. If you're ever interested in hearing more about it, um, you can always contact me for, for volunteer opportunities. But I'm just going to pray uh, for a minute or two about just our ministry and the teams that come through it. Uh, so let's bow our heads and pray. Uh, God, we're so thankful uh, for 1012 Sports and the ministry that you've uh, just provided um, in West Baltimore and for the vision of, of the people who lead it. I pray that um, you continue uh, just to let your Holy Spirit move. Um, through the leaders in the ministry. I just pray for the the upcoming football season in the spring and summertime uh, for all the uh, kids that have come through in the past and and the new ones that come. I just pray that they're blessed, um, that they can just learn more about you and about teamwork, humbleness, love, and just all the many things you're going to teach them. Uh, I just pray for the coaches and mentors that come through the ministry. I pray that um, just that... uh, you're, you're able to just move through them, uh, move through us, and just that we can make, be able to make an impact um, and just be present with the kids and in their lives. Um, pray for uh, just the young men that one day that they would become leaders in their community and um, just followers of you and men of you. Um, pray for the families of these teens, um, that they would be impacted in a positive way and that they can see God um, through this ministry. Um, and just lastly, uh, pray for the healing amongst these teens. Um, a lot of them uh, just have troubled backgrounds of uh, fatherlessness, um, just seeing drugs in their community, uh, violence around them. God, I just pray that you uh, would start to redeem some of these things and that when, though, when the teens are just in times of desperation and, and don't know where to go and just uh, seek peace, that, that you would just provide that for them. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Greg's going to come up and read today's scripture passage. Today's scripture is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 34. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment." About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Thank you. Um, Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our church. 
Thank you that uh, you love us, not because of anything that we have done, uh, not because of uh, our ability to perform, our ability to make things look nice on a Sunday morning, but you love us simply because of who you are. And so thank you for this opportunity to open up your word and to remember who you are and to respond to that in light of that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my name is Larry. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here at the village. And the last few months, we've been going through the book of First Corinthians. Uh, we took a short hiatus about two years, uh, two weeks ago. Uh, Jason gave a great sermon on worship. Last week, we were supposed to cover First Corinthians eleven two through sixteen, um, which is about head coverings. Fortunately, we didn't do that. And so today, we are going to be covering First Corinthians eleven. 17 through 34, which is on communion. Maybe some of you all, you, um, um, you don't have a preference what the sermon is about every Sunday. You just show up and you just, you know, I'm just showing up because it's what I'm supposed to do on Sunday. You don't really think about what people are preaching on. Um, and, uh, but maybe some of you, you are actually really looking forward to talking about head coverings. And uh, <laughs> um, so for those of you who are really looking forward to talking about head coverings, I'm just going to make a few quick comments Okay, just to catch up on speed, uh, because it is, it is one of those passages that is a little hard to stand, so I'm going to understand, so I'm going to make a few quick comments on last week's passage, what we should have talked about, and then we'll dive into today's passage. That's what we're going to do, okay? 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, uh, this passage uh, about head coverings has been uh, very contested and debated throughout history, and especially modern history, and in particular, I'm just going to read verses 3 through 6, verses 3 through 6. And Paul writes, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For a wife will not cover her head, and she should... If a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So Paul's talking about these public church gatherings, and he's telling men to uncover their heads, and he's telling women to cover their heads. So that's what's going on. So there's a few big questions. One, why is Paul even talking about this? Why does this even matter? And then two... Are Christians today required to literally follow these commands? And uh, many of you, if you look around the room, are not literally following these commands. So um, is that okay? Um, And I think this passage is particularly confusing because the cultural backdrop is totally foreign to us in modern-day America. Um, To us, we may read something like this, and we may immediately think gender inequality. That's what we immediately think when we come to a passage like this. But I don't think it's that simple. And I think one um, dynamic that's sort of similar to what's going on here that sort of help us wrap our brains around this is what's going on um, in European countries today with minority Muslim populations. Um, Over the past 10 or 20 years, many European countries have been banning women in public from wearing head coverings, specifically veils like hijabs and niqabs. And here's a picture um, and these veils are worn by conservative Muslim women who make up the, the mi- minority of the population. And, but what's going on is 
the majority of the population, they don't want this minority to be wearing these head coverings. And so maybe it's Islamophobia, maybe it's just security reasons, maybe it's in the name of gender inequality, but they have been passing these laws banning these women from wearing these HUD coverings. And um, it's interesting because many of these Muslim women are actually angry about this ban because they insist they really want to wear these head coverings, not because the religion tells them so, not because their husbands are telling them so, because they want to. They view these HUD coverings as a, as a freedom of expression, of identity. And there was an article in August last year in the Atlantic that interviewed this Muslim woman in Denmark, and I'm just going to quote this, and it's on the screen, and she says, I haven't been out all day because I really have to consider if it's worth going out and worth me getting a fine because I'm at risk of that now. Every time I step out of my front door, I'm a criminal. The niqab is a huge part of my identity. It's a very spiritual choice, and now it has also become a sign of protest. And so I bring that up just to compare and contrast some of the reasons people might have for banning this head covering and some of the statements made by some of the women who actually wear the head coverings. And you can see there's a disconnect. Because in the Western world, sometimes there's a tendency to look at women in these cultures. They do things differently. and they and Interesting. Uh, and they immediately jump to, that's gender inequality. And sometimes it is. That's true. And I think there are times in which we need to promote gender equality throughout the world, especially in some areas where that doesn't exist. But sometimes it's more nuanced because what might look like silence and oppression to some people is actually protest and expression to other people. And I think that context is necessary here. If you go back to Paul's day, in Paul's day, it was typical for married women to wear veils in public places. And they did so, and you you might think it's because they were forced to, but it's not necessarily the case. They wore veils because it was an expression of the fact that they were married. It's sort of like how women today, they wear wedding rings. And it's not like someone is, you know, uh, controlling them and saying, you need to wear your wedding ring. They want to wear a wedding ring, and guys do this too today, because they want to express that they have been married. Um, Even today, we carry a little bit of this uh, head covering tradition. In marriage today, sometimes it's common for brides to wear veils or head coverings, and it's a way to signify that they're getting married. And so back then, uh, it was common for people to wear veils, not just on wedding days, but all the time in public places. Um, and, and the reason why, well, there's a few things. One, uh, Roman law at the time stated that if a married woman was not dressed appropriately and with the head covering, and if a man assaulted her, then the man was not liable because the woman did not show publicly that she was married. Okay, so that's a messed up law, okay, that's messed up. But, okay, f- and what, people, what women did as a result is they would choose to go out in, a, in proper married uh, uh, clothing because they didn't want to be assaulted, okay? So they wore these things as a sign of protection, almost to, to signify, I am not uh, sexually available, okay? I am married, and so don't assault me. So that's what people did often in public. So that sounds kind of strange to us, but that's what they did. They chose to wear these things as a form of safety. It might sound odd to us, but back then, it was commonly believed that uh, um, hair was one of the most attractive parts of the body. And it was also commonly believed that a woman's beauty was dangerous to men and that it could cause men to lose self-control. And so that's what people thought at the time. That was a culture. 
And so oftentimes people would choose to cover up their hair. And in fact, uh, people who are prostitutes or people who wanted to make themselves sexually available, they would intentionally not cover their hair and let down their hair. So that was sort of the, the reputation of someone who would let down their hair and the reputation of someone who would cover up their hair. So the Christian church at the time, so that's the context. So yeah, the Christian church at the time was doing something pretty revolutionary. And, and that thing was they were having co-ed worship services. Okay, Co-ed worship services were men and women that were worshiping together in the same room. And that was a little bit, you know, strange for a lot of people. And it was especially strange for men who all of a sudden, they were experiencing this new thing in which they were surrounded by a lot of women in a public area. And some of these women were not wearing head coverings. Okay, so just put yourself in the shoes of a man in that culture. You're thinking, I want to lose self-control. You're thinking all these things. And so what Paul's doing here, and he's saying, we want a worship environment where people are not distracted. You know, there's all sorts of things in our culture that are good and bad and ugly, but you know, we're not going to fix everything. But given the culture, what we're going to do is we don't want to have distractions. So women wear head coverings. Okay, so that's what Paul is saying. So that's what's going on. What about today? Should, wear, should women wear head coverings today? Uh, personally, I don't think so because the context to which Paul is speaking is so different from the context of today. Today in America, you know, head coverings don't have the same amount of meaning that they had in Paul's day. And, uh, and I think a parallel example we can think about this is in Romans 16, verse 16, Paul tells people, greet one another with a holy kiss. And in Paul's culture, doing this would demonstrate affection. Uh, but in today's culture, doing this would not demonstrate affection. It would demonstrate creepiness, probably. And so, uh, you know, in, at least in America it's in, today in Baltimore. So that's why uh, it's not very common for us to do that. And so are we being disobedient to Paul when we don't do that? I wouldn't say no. So I would say that we're following the heart behind the law, which is that we want to be affectionate with other people. Um, and so I would say the head covering thing falls in a similar category. So that's my little spiel on head covering um, we're going to dive into today's passage. Today's sermon is titled, Taking Communion in an Unworthy Manner. Taking Communion in an Unworthy Manner. Uh, originally, I was thinking about titling it, Partaking of Communion. And I was sort of uh, thinking about that phrasing because I almost never hear that word, partake, outside of the context of communion. And so it's just sort of like one of those Christian gibberish things nowadays. But anyways, I'm calling it taking communion in an unworthy manner. And I'm talking, I'm labeling it that because in verse 27, as Greg read earlier, it says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And today I want to explain what it means to take communion in an unworthy manner. What it means to take communion in an unworthy manner. But before we get there, I want to talk about what communion is in the first place. So what is communion? Why do we even do this thing at all um, called communion? I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but communion, from an outsider's perspective, if you weren't Christianized, if you had no Christian background, is a little bit odd. It's a little odd. Uh, one of the central components of the church is you come and you eat in, your, in the middle of your worship gathering. So from an outsider's perspective, it's a little odd. So why do we do that? Uh, why is it that we have eating as a form of communion? I mean, God could have chosen anything uh, as one of these ordinances. At the Last Supper, you know, Jesus could have, uh, you know, instead of telling us to take communion, he could have told us to do a special dance. You know, he could have told us to say a special, you know, mantra. He could have told us to, 
you know, uh, go wrestling, whatever. He could have done all sorts of different things, but he's, he told us to eat. Well, um, in ancient times, eating was a sign of fellowship. And eating was a sign of friendship. Eating was a sign of harmony. You choose to eat with someone who you like, who you're on good terms with. And you don't eat with people who you're not on good terms with. Unless you're trying to be fake, you're trying to stab in the back or something. You know, and, and we sort of do that, even today to some extent. Uh, you know, sometimes my wife and I, when we get into a fight, we don't eat with one another. And maybe some of you relate to that. And then after we reconcile, you know, one of the signs that we've reconciled is we start, we say, hey, do you want to get something to eat? And go, oh yeah, let's get something to eat. And so that's our sort of way of letting each other know, okay, okay, the fight is over. Now we're on good terms. Um, and throughout the Bible, there's that similar dynamic and um, I'm just going to run through a few passages. In the beginning, uh, here's some key passages on eating. In the beginning, when God created human beings, he blessed them. And then what did he tell them to do? He told them to eat. He said, I give you all the plants to eat. And that eating was a sign that now God loves us. God blesses us. He's in relationship with us. He wants to provide for us. And so he's telling us to eat. And then when we sinned, a curse fell on us. And one of the curses in Genesis 3 is that God tells the man, now it is more difficult to eat. Now it's more difficult to eat. You have to sweat, you have to have pain, and you have to have toil in order to eat of the ground, okay? So that this friendship, this fellowship, this harmony is now tarnished, and it's demonstrated through the difficulty in eating. Fast forward a little bit, we have the story of Noah. Noah builds a bow, his family survives the flood. God blesses him, renews the original covenant, with, uh, with the first human beings. And then he tells them, now, just as I gave you the plants to eat, now I give you all the meat to eat, all the animals to eat. So he's telling them, I'm going to provide for you again. And I'm going to give you food. And once again, this food is a sign of this fellowship, of this relationship we have with God. Fast forward some more. We have some Israelites who are enslaved in Egypt. God sends Moses to rescue them, set them free. And there's these series of plagues. And the very last plague... Uh, right before God instructs his people to kill a lamb and to get the blood of the lamb, to put it on the doorpost of their homes, and then he tells them to eat the lamb. And this is a sign to demonstrate that God was rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt. And from then on, God tells the Israelites, every year you're going to celebrate this thing called Passover, which will be an annual feast. And what do you do at a feast? You eat in order to remember the fact that God has rescued you. Um, and so this, uh, this eating thing was a sign that God is on your side. He's going to, he, he cares for you. He, he, he's rescued you and he's going to provide for you. And he wants to establish a covenant with you. And throughout the time in, in the wilderness, when Israel was wandering around, going to the promised land, God will pro- continually provide them with food, manna from heaven and water from rocks and, 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 and things like that. And so God is continually reminding the Israelites I love you. I'm in a relationship with you. I have harmony and fellowship and friendship with you. And he's doing that through food. And John, at the very end of the Bible, receives this vision in Revelation 19, in which this angel says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's a beautiful picture because the kingdom of God, in its fullest, most realized form, is a big wedding reception. It's a, it's a bunch of people eating and celebrating together through food. And that's also the sign that we are now in perfect harmony, perfect union with God. So food is representing all of that. And so that brings us to communion. 
Because communion is also about eating food. Communion is about eating food. And continuing this tradition of eating in the Bible, communion is this proclamation of the fact that we have fellowship and friendship and harmony. And I want to propose there are two dimensions to this. We have fellowship, friendship, and harmony. We have union with God and we have union with the church. So communion is a proclamation of union with God and union with the church. That's what communion represents. So what does it mean, therefore? So given that, what does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? I'm going to dive into the passage in a little bit, but I think what it means is to participate in communion without having union with God or to participate in communion without having union with the church. I think that's what it means to take communion in an unworthy manner. And I want to show that to you. So number one, communion symbolizes union with God. Verse 27 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood, the body and the blood of the Lord. So there's a word therefore. When you see that in the Bible, therefore, you got to you go back up a little bit. So I'm going to read verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant with my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so... And then he says, therefore, take communion and don't take communion in an unworthy manner. So when you say communion, this is Paul's point, you are proclaiming Jesus' death. You are proclaiming Jesus' death. And so you need to remember what you are proclaiming. You are to remember the fact that Jesus dies. And, he, and he's recounting what Jesus did at the Last Supper, the last meal he ate before he died, which is that the bread, he said, this is my bread, and you broke it. And he said, I'm going to give it to you. And this is my, my blood. He drank the wine and he passed it out. And he says that when you are, and that's my blood. And he says, when you're eating this, you are remembering the fact that Jesus died for you. You're remembering the fact that Jesus died for you. And you're remembering that because Jesus died for you, now you have been united with God. And it's the same concept as the Israelites. Just as the ancient Israelites, they ate this Passover feast regularly to remember that God rescued them from Egypt. Now we eat communion regularly to remember that God rescued us from our sins. And so when God invites you to take communion, what he's saying to you is he's saying, I invite you to eat with me. I invite you to eat with me because we have this union, this harmony, this fellowship, this friendship that has been secured through the death of Jesus. Because Jesus died, now we have this perfect relation, we have this relationship together, and so I'm inviting you to eat with me. You're no longer an outcast. You can eat with me. And if you are here today and you don't have union with God, if you don't have a relationship with God, maybe you don't feel like you know God, uh, I want to thank you for being here, and I want to say you are welcome here, and I want to encourage you to spend time at this church, to talk to people here at this church, uh, to find out how to be in a relationship with God. Um, and I want you to know that um, you don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to uh, 
figure a lot of things out. You don't need to answer a lot of questions. All you need to know is that God created the world to be good. We all messed up. We did wrong things. We rejected that relationship with God. But God restored us through Jesus dying on the cross. And if you just trust in that story, then you're restored in right relationship with God. And that's all you need to know. And once you believe that message, once you have been restored to God, then you start doing this thing called communion. In which you eat this bread, you drink this uh, uh, grape juice in our context, or you, you dip the bread in the grape juice in our context, and you remember that Jesus' blood and Jesus' body, Jesus' blood was shed, Jesus' body was broken for us, so that we could be brought into relation with God. Um, if you are here, and uh, the, what, what Paul is saying is, if you are here and you are not in, reli- in right relationship with God, if you don't have this harmony, this friendship, this union with God, and if you're not seeking that out, then I think the implication is you should not be taking communion. You shouldn't be taking communion because your communion would be a lie. You're proclaiming something through communion that isn't true. You're proclaiming a lie. And Paul is saying that when you're doing that, you're taking communion in an unworthy manner and you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. So don't do that. That's what Paul is saying. So that's the first reason why we do communion, to remember our union with God. There's another reason we take communion to symbolize our union with the church. And you might go, why? How do you see that? And if you read this passage we just read, it's not exactly clear. But if you zoom out, I think it is pretty clear. So I'm going to read the whole thing, verses 17 through 34, with some commentary. Starting from verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So he's saying, you're coming together as a church, and you're gathering together, and you might think that's a good thing, but I'm not commending you in that, because it's not for the better, for, for the worse. Why is that? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So that's Paul's point. That's the context of this passage. It's the context of the whole book that Paul's addressing. There's divisions in the church. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And now he brings up communion. Verse, 19, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. He's saying you're all doing separate things. You're divided. You're not being together. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God, and humiliate those who have nothing, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So to give you some context, okay. Communion back then, it wasn't uh, this, this, uh, a table with some crackers and some juice and everyone would take turns and do like that. Communion back then was actually a meal. It was a meal, like a full meal, like you eat until you're full. And um, ideally, and so people would, would come together and they would actually eat together. And as they were eating together, they would remember Jesus. That's what communion was like. And what was going on was these people were so divided, so not eating together, and so that some people had a lot of food, so much food that they were getting drunk off the food, and some people didn't have any food to eat, and they were going hungry. And so Paul's noticing that dynamic, and he's saying, how could you have a church like that where some people are having so much food, they're getting drunk, and some people have so little food, they're going hungry. That is not Lord's Supper as it was meant to be because, because you're not loving the people in your church. So that's Paul's point, okay? And he's, and he's saying these poor people, they're being humiliated. You're coming together, they're going hungry. How kind of church is that? You, you can't have a church where some people are eating so much, they're getting drunk, some people are not eating, they're going hungry. So he's saying, so he's saying you're humiliating these people, and he's saying if you're going to eat like that, 
He said, he's saying, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? In other words, if you're just going to take communion on your own, that's not real communion. It's not the Lord's Supper. You, you might as well eat at home. You might as well eat at home and not come at all. So now here's the passage we read earlier, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also del- delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We read that earlier. Keep going. Verse 27. Here's the passage that Greg read. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And I think this unworthy manner applies to the whole passage. The whole passage. Keep going, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. When he's saying without discerning the body, I think he's saying this is the body of Christ in both ways. The body of Christ that was broken on the cross, killed for us, and the body of Christ, the church. So you need to keep both in mind. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we, should, we would not be judged. That when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Again, he's saying you can't just take communion willy-nilly. You have to take communion in a, in a worthy manner, remembering what you are proclaiming. That you are proclaiming you are united with God and you are united with the church. So you need to examine yourself, make sure you're not in sin, and he's going to talk about it again. What kind of sin? Verse 33. This is where it all comes together. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. Don't have this dynamic where you're just eating by yourselves and some people who are hungry are not having food to eat. If anyone is hungry, let's say you can't wait for one another, then go eat at home. Let them eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. So Paul is saying, when you're gathering as a church and you're doing this thing called communion, the Lord's Supper, you need to wait for one another. You need to serve one another. You need to love one another. And if you are going to prioritize your physical needs over the love for the church, and you're just going to go lavish and, and you're going to lavish yourself with all this food and you're going to allow these other people to go hungry then he's saying, then don't even eat with the church. Just eat at home by yourselves. This is radical because Paul is saying, if you are not caring for the people in the church, then you shouldn't be taking communion with the people in the church. Why? Because communion signifies not only that you have union with God, but also that you have union with the church. And if you are proclaiming publicly by taking communion that you have union with the church but you're not demonstrating that with your lives then you're taking communion in an unworthy manner you're proclaiming a lie communion is to represent that you have fellowship friendship and harmony not only with god but also with the church communion is a proclamation of union not only with god but also with the church and that's why when we do communion we come to one table. It's not like we have you know, a rich people table, a poor people table. It's not like we have a, 
a white people table, an Asian people table, a black people table. It's not like we have a, you know, a meat table, a vegan table. We have one table. We have one table. And what that represents is that all of these divisions that we have an opportunity to have, that you know, society is always telling us to set these boundaries, to define us in certain ways. This person's in, this person's out, this person's cool, this person's out. Society has all these different boundaries, ways of determining who's awesome, who's not. That the, the one table that we have in communion is to say none of these boundaries matter in the church. All these boundaries, all these cultural lines that we're always drawing to divide people, let's keep that outside the church. In the church, let's have one table and it's a chance for all of us to come together to be one and the same. And it doesn't matter if you talk different. It doesn't matter if you look different. It doesn't matter if you think different. It doesn't matter if you smell different. You're my brother and sister in Christ. And so we're going to have one table. We're going to celebrate together. I'm going to eat with you together. Uh, but unfortunately, when we think of communion today, that's not often what we think of. Um, oftentimes when we think of communion, we're thinking uh, in terms of this is like a somber thing between me and God. And, um, and it, it's sort of interesting um, because throughout history, biblical history, non-biblical history, Christian history, non-Christian history, when people have eaten food, uh, it is a sign of friendship and fellowship. But in the church today, when we do this thing called communion, usually it's like a very silent ritualistic act, and you're not really talking to anybody, and you're doing it with strangers. And it's unfortunate that it has come to that. And uh, I don't think we need to like totally redo everything but I think the point I want to make is I don't want to be a church where every week we just eat with strangers and we don't know each other at all and then we go home. I want to be a church where the people you eat with during communion are the people you are in true fellowship and friendship and harmony with. On Sundays and also Monday through Saturday. Um, we've separated the act of communion from the people we are to commune with. And by doing so, we've removed one of the main points of communion. Maybe some of you are thinking, you know, well, I, don't, I don't know if I really care about that. You know, whenever I come to church, I'm not thinking about well, who I can be friends with. I just want to worship, learn about God, and go home. And that's why I go to church. And uh, I just want to gently say to you, if all you want to do is worship God and learn about God. You can do that probably just as well here. I mean, maybe even better than here, at home. You can do that at home. You can find some sermons to listen to. You can find some podcasts to listen to. You can read the Bible on your own. You can pray on your own, sing some songs on your own. You can stream some uh, Hillsong or whatever your band is. You can do that at home. But coming to church, church, by definition, is the people of God. Coming to church is the act of worshiping God, learning about God, fellowship with God, with other people. That's the whole point of church, is you're doing it with other people. And communion, therefore, is you're eating and fellowshipping with God, with other people. Maybe you're thinking, well, I don't fit in with these people. You know, I, I come, you know, they look different from me. You know, they, I don't, they just seem different from me. I don't fit in. And I would say, that's the point. That's the point. The church is a bunch of people who naturally don't fit in with one another, 
But because of God, because of Jesus' death, because of their common allegiance to Jesus, they have become friends, not because they like each other naturally, not because they have the same hobbies necessarily, but because they have chosen to take down boundaries and walls in order to be friends with one another out of out of a response of the fact that Jesus tore down boundaries and walls to be friends with us. That's what the church is about. Paul explicitly mentions in the church that there are people of different classes. They have different means, able to eat or not eat different things. And he's saying, you're supposed to be one table. And that same concept is supposed to apply today. Communion is a declaration of commitment, not only to God, but to one another. So even if there are people of different ethnicities, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, people of different age demographics, people of different hobbies and habits and schedules, communion is a time when you say, I am one with these people. I am one with these people, and I'm going to take communion together. I'm going to eat with them to demonstrate that I have been reconciled with God and reconciled with one another. Um, maybe some of you, you're hearing this, and you go, okay, that sounds amazing. Now what do I do? How do I even start? I've been doing the same thing over and over. I come to church. I don't really know too many people. Where do I start? Number one, if you are not involved in a community group, I would say that's a great place to start. If you're not involved with a community group, that's a great place to start. Sometimes we think of church as the Sunday event. I go to church on Sundays. Don't be late for church. Oh, there's a hole in the church roof. When we're we're thinking about church as a building or as an event. The church is the people, and I think it's more proper to say the church gathers on Sundays for worship, and the church gathers in other settings like community groups for Bible study and prayer and community. And so here are a list of community groups on the screen. If you're not involved in one, find one. There's also a list on the back table. There's a blue sheet of paper if you just go out the side doors. I want to suggest this, okay? If you are not regularly gathering with a small group of Christians where you can develop friendships, where you can share, where you can be vulnerable, where you can challenge one another, then you are potentially selling yourself a half-baked form of Christianity that isn't sustainable long-term. If you're not regularly gathering with a small group of Christians where you have friends, you can share, you can be vulnerable, you can challenge one another, learn from one another, then you are selling yourself a half-baked Christianity that isn't sustainable long-term. The Bible is filled with one another commands. Love one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, comfort one another, bear one another's burden. The Bible is filled with these commands How in the world are you supposed to fulfill these commands if you don't have anybody to do it with? How are you supposed to fulfill these commands if you don't have anybody to do it with? The Bible assumes that the church is this community of people. They're they're living together. They're doing things together. And there's no such thing as a solo Christian. So maybe you've tried tried to go to a group before, you know, and um, you say it doesn't work out. Whatever reason doesn't work out. Maybe it's a scheduling issue. Maybe it's a... Um, I feel like I don't fit in issue. Maybe everyone's making inside jokes and I don't get it issue. Maybe it's a transportation issue. Maybe it's uh, they all eat this kind of food and I don't like it, that issue. Whatever your issue is, I want you to know, some, it might be uh, an okay excuse, it might be a bad excuse, but it's not a good excuse. Okay, And if that's you, talk to me. Talk to me. 
and we will find something for you. We will make something for you. Okay? We will find a way for you to have community if that's something that you want. We can start a new group if you want. If you're not experienced, maybe you're already in a group. Okay, maybe, maybe you're already in a group. And your issue is that you, you, uh, isn't that you can't go to a group. Your, your issue is that I'm already going to a group. I feel fake. Or I feel like I don't know people. Or I feel like people don't really know me. I feel like I'm just going through the rhythms. And I don't really feel known. And that's okay to admit too. Maybe some of you, uh, um, you have to, maybe the group isn't necessarily the best way to do that. So if that's you, here's something to try, okay? Identify somebody in the church who you want to be friends with or someone in the church you want to, that you look up to, you think you can learn stuff from. And here's what you're going to do. This is kind of radical, okay? Talk to them, okay, number one, and ask them to meet up. Talk to them and ask them to meet up, okay? That sounds kind of weird, right? To meet up with someone. If you're too shy, another thing you can do is you can text them or email them and ask them to meet up. You don't have to, you don't have to like commit to anything. Just ask them to meet up one time. And then during that meetup, here's the next step that's a little more challenging. Be honest with where you are with that person. Just share. Just share, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm struggling with. What do you think? And just be honest, okay? Just take that step of faith. Just take that step of faith. And I want to assure you, if you take that step of faith, God will do something. Okay? He might not solve all of your problems that instant, but God will do something. So do that. Maybe others of you, you already have close friendships and you're awesome, okay? But I want to suggest one more thing if that's you. Don't just make friends, also make cross-cultural friends. Don't just make friends, but also make cross-cultural friends. Because one of the things in 1 Corinthians is that this church is so divided. Um, They're self-segregated. And Paul is saying that don't be self-segregated. Don't have this dynamic where you're all eating by yourselves. Be one. And so... Have a heart where you're intentionally stepping out of your circles in order to be friends with people who are not naturally in your circles. Whether it's your ethnicities or your life stage or your hobbies or schedule. Find, look at your circle of friends and identify, okay, who am I naturally hanging out with? Who am I not naturally hanging out with? And find those people who you're naturally hanging out with and hang out with them. Okay, so that's, that's it's pretty straightforward, but do that. Because we're supposed to be unified, not only with the people in the church we like, not only with the people in the church we're natural friends with, but with the whole church. I'm going to read this uh, quote from D.A. Carson. It's pretty long, but I'm going to read this, and then we'll, we'll close. This is from his book, Love in Hard Places. Most people have their own little circle of in-people, their own list of compatible people, their friends. Christian love must go beyond that to include people outside the group. The objects of our love of our love must include those who are not in. It must include enemies. The church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. How in the world 
is a group of natural enemies supposed to love one another, it's only possible when we remember that Jesus chose to love his enemies. That's the only way it's possible. We were all enemies of God, and none of us were compatible friends with God. Yet Jesus loved us so much that he died for us so that we could be invited into the in-group. And when we take communion and we remember this radical love of God, when we remember the fact that Jesus died for us so that we can be reconciled, so that we're no longer enemies but friends with God, then our only possible response is to love others the same way. So that we, say, we see people who are natural enemies, people who we naturally don't get along with, people who naturally eat different things and smell different things or smell different ways and, 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 and do different things. And we say, you are my friend. You're my brother and sister in Christ. And I love you. And I will commit myself to you. That's the same radical love that Jesus gave us. Let's pray. God, some of us... Uh, are here and we don't have a relationship with you. And God, we are asking that you would invade our hearts today and restore us, convict us of our sin, raise us from the dead, and allow us to know you, have a relationship with you. Others of us are in this room. Maybe we have a relationship with you, but we feel alone. Maybe we don't have a relationship with others in your church. And God, I pray the same, that you would convict our hearts. You would provide us with close friends who point us to you. God, I pray for our church that we wouldn't just be a group of strangers coming together weekly to do a few things and then go back to our regular lives, but, but we would truly be the body of Christ, one with one another, united by the gospel, committed to one another, dedicated to one another, willing to lay down our lives for one another because that's what you did with us. Thank you that you have made us, your enemies, your friends. And I pray that we would do the same with one another. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.